We're looking at Genesis chapter 29 this morning, an amazing passage of Scripture, a complicated and in many ways twisted tale, but one that shows us the realities of what we were looking at just a little bit ago as I opened up the service together, quoting from Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, that we reap what it is that we sow. We see, I believe, as we look to this passage in Genesis 29, we see that that's true of Jacob. And we see that what, as it were, that went out from him also comes back to him. Or as um, the old saying goes, the chickens really do come home to roost uh, in the end. Or as that saying goes, you have to sleep in the bed that you've made living in the consequences and the realities of the ways in which you've lived and now come home. Jacob's experiencing that a bit in this passage in a shocking and deeply disturbing way. I realize that as I say that, that's true of every one of us in some ways in this room. We live with the consequences of the things that we thought and said and done. And some of those are really not very pretty. And the realization is, as we come into the presence of the Lord this morning, some of us carry that burden and we're asking the Lord, Lord, could you, could you relieve us of the consequences of decisions that we've made? Um, could you change our hearts and our lives and could you lighten the load? And I want to encourage you on the front end, even before we get to the promises of this word, though the Lord wants to teach you the severe mercy of reaping what you sow, he also wants to show you the fact that in his kindness, He's come to bear what it is that you have sown so that you might reap a very different eternity. As we approach this text, the scripture today, keep that on your heart and ask the Lord to work that truth into your mind. Genesis chapter 29, beginning in verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and he came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. Is it not time for the livestock to be gathered together? Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman. And that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. 
Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are bone of my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not done in our, so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we read this, this tale of intrigue and of scandal, uh, one that in many ways uh, causes us to uh, be horrified at what it is that we see takes place on the text and the deception and the manipulation and the treachery that's behind the actions and the usury and the manipulation that's inside of men's hearts. We realize, Father, that as we look into this text, you've got more than just the darkness of men to show us. You've got the lightness of the greatness of the gospel itself to reveal. If we would only have eyes to see it, we come needing your spirit to come, asking you to open up our eyes to behold the wonderful things that you have planned for us here in this word. Father, be mindful of our need now and speak to us powerfully. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's one of those things that you just don't forget. I was in fourth grade. We had just turned in our tests. And I realized, as you sometimes do in those tiny little desks in fourth grade, that as you turned that paper in, it was not going to be a good grade. 
I started thinking, started plotting throughout the day as I saw the stack of those turned-in papers on my teacher, Ms. Kaminish's desk. And as the students went out to recess, I slipped back into the room, made my way to those pile of papers, found my paper, and found the paper of a young lady who's one of the best students in the class. (laughs) I promptly erased her name from her paper and wrote my own name on her test and, of course, erased my name from my paper and promptly wrote her name on my test. Oh, a fourth grade mind. The young lady, once these tests were turned back out, noticed the fact that the handwriting in the rest of the test was different from the handwriting that was written in the name spot on the test and drew Ms. Kaminish's attention to this matter. And I was called to meet with Ms. Kaminish outside in the hallway and then later with the headmaster and then later with my parents. I have not cheated since fourth grade. (laughs) You might say I learned, as it was, the lesson. For I had to face a series of consequences which I will not belabor in this moment. Do not be deceived, Paul writes. God is not mocked. Whatever it is that one sows, he will also reap. Now, we may be able to get by for a little while in this life for not everything that we have done wrong to be found out, but there will come a day where Jesus tells us that every idle word will be brought into judgment. That all of the thoughts, the words, and the actions which we have done in secret and behind closed doors will be made known in the presence of the Lord. And the question of that moment is, will you reap what it is that you have sown? Or will you, by God's grace, reap what someone else has sown? As we look at this text together in Genesis 29, we see Jacob reap what it is that he has sown. But we also see a theme of grace revealed. A beautiful theme of grace that teaches us something about a greater story that's taking place in Genesis chapter 29. A story of a greater sowing leading to a much better reaping. Now to see this though, we need to look at this text in a couple of just clear ways today and rehearse as it were some of its twists and turns. We need to see the principle of this text, namely that we reap what we sow and see how it plays out in the life of Jacob. But then we need to see the problem of that principle. The problem of that principle. Because it puts every single one of us in this room in a pretty significant predicament. And then we need to see, finally, the promise that lies behind that principle. 
Because the Lord has made a way for us to have something different than what we reap is what we've sown. So let's start with this principle. It's interesting the passage starts so promising, doesn't it? Starts so promising. It says that Jacob went on his journey. He's picked up after the vision that he's had in the previous chapter of a stairway from heaven. God himself interceding through the power and the mission of angels. And now he's sending him on to Haran. And the language of the text is that Jacob lifted up his feet. It has something of a kind of skip in his step as he takes off towards Haran because now he knows God is with him and he knows the promises of God are with him. And very similar to what we found in Genesis chapter 24. Do you remember that? When the servant comes and looks for Isaac, a wife, we find here a very similar pattern. Jacob shows up in Haran and he finds some shepherds there with their sheep at a well And what happens? But Rachel, the shepherdess, shows up at that well. Uh, The very daughter of Laban, the son of Nahor. Uh, The family that he has come to look for a wife to gain from. Uh, His mother's brother, and whom he has been now sent in order to locate a woman in whom he will live, by God's grace, the rest of his life with. It's a beautiful story. It's a tight scene in the scripture of which we see regularly men looking for women and finding them at wells. It's it's a theme that we see. We've already seen it in chapter 24. We see it here in chapter 28. And don't we, of course, with Jesus, with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. As he meets with a woman who is deeply broken, who's had four husbands already a serial adulterer and he leads her to trust in him who will be her only true bridegroom it's a picture that we see throughout the scriptures and it's one that we should pay attention to each time it shows up because the scriptures are showing us in a very literary fashion what it is for us to be able to look for here it is Rachel the beautiful in form and appearance shepherdess has come out with her sheep And she is meeting her future husband, Jacob. And we see Jacob is excited about this because his manly self comes out in the text. Did you notice that? We got all of those unusual little little words in verses 2 and 3 about the stone being over the well and it being so large and the shepherds gathered there and they're waiting for other shepherds to get there. And it's telling us that this well has been covered with a large stone and it takes a band of shepherds. Shepherds are strong men. It takes a band of shepherds to push the stone away. Now, in order for them to be able to water their sheep, well, uh, there are these shepherds waiting for other shepherds to arrive when Rachel shows up. And what do we see Jacob do in the passage? Well, this manly man just steps up and, and he just pushes the rock out of the way so that Rachel would be able to water her own sheep. It's a remarkable picture. In fact, some have said, well, you know, this is a man, you know, beating his chest, impressing a woman. Well, yes, I'm sure there's at least a little bit of that. Jacob is a man, and he is a sinner, and he is normal in those sense, but it's actually probably a bigger picture of God's presence with him and the strength of God's presence with him. Maybe you'll remember the type scene back in Genesis 24. Do you remember when Rebecca showed up as the servant was looking for someone who would marry Isaac and become his wife. Do you remember what Rebecca did? She watered the ten camels of the servant. 
we, we said in that message that it takes about 25 to 30 gallons for the thirst of a camel to be quenched. At the most, she had a three-gallon jar that she likely carried on her head going down into the well and coming back up to water the camels. Hundreds of gallons used to water. It was an incredible feat of strength. Well, what do we see in this passage? An incredible feat of strength from her very son. She, in some ways, walking, as it were, in his mother's pathway Walking in a similar fashion, the Lord teaching us to connect these two in the midst of the passage. But I think showing us, even more importantly, God is with Jacob. God is with Jacob. Now, we would expect at this moment that things are just going to turn out splendidly. Everything's going so well. He's found Rachel. He just showed up. Laban comes out and embraces him and brings him into his home. He cries out with emotion and kisses Rachel. This, I mean, you almost want to stop in verse 14 and just say, didn't they just live happily ever after, right? I mean, that's surely that's how this happened. We cut to the credits and the screen gets a little fuzzy on the corners and we see an idyllic meadow. They go dancing off into the distance. I mean, that's what we were expecting to see. And it's at that moment that the wills really begin to come off in the passage. In verse 15, we see that Laban approaches Jacob, and what does he do? Well, he begins to ask a question about payment. It looks like a generous comment. If you look there in verse 15, you see that in the text... Um, Laban asked this question, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now it appears, again, generous. He says, just because you're my, my nephew doesn't mean you have to serve me for nothing. Name your price. I'd love to be able to remunerate you. What's interesting about the text is actually the opposite when you begin to read the scholarly literature on Genesis chapter 29 is actually taking place. Instead of, of Jacob really being brought into the family and being treated like a son who would not have received remuneration but would have been fully taken care of to establish his own home, he's actually being treated more like a day worker, like a day wage worker that our relationship, Laban is saying to Jacob, will be on you do something for me and I'll do something for you. It's a tit-for-tat relationship. As that relationship unfolds, we see that they strike upon a deal. Jacob is, is head over heels, of course, for, uh, for Rachel. And he says to him, listen, I'm willing to work seven years in order to receive your younger daughter, Rachel. And immediately they enter into the arrangement of the work and he completes the seven years. And in one of the most beautiful little verses in the text, verse 20, we're told that it was these seven years were almost like a few days to Jacob. Man was so in love. He kind of hovered above the ground in this season of life as he longed to be united to Rachel. He worked through with the prize in view and he got to the, to the end of the seven years, and verse 21 notes it in a kind of raw fashion, to be, to be honest, a kind of demanding fashion. Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. We really don't see this kind of a raw demand uh, given usually within the text. There's actually in the, the sense of the unfolding of the text a kind of frustration 
that's rising up here in the midst of, of, of Jacob's own heart. It gives the indication that maybe Laban had at the time even passed a little further than seven, seven years. That he wasn't upholding his end of the bargain. He's saying, listen, it's time. The time has come. Give my wife to me. Obviously, we don't know what Laban and Jacob's relationship is. The whole text doesn't go into great detail with regards to it. But this note of frustration and lack of patience is present already before uh, the deception ensues. We see that Laban does uphold the end of his bargain, or at least appears to be able to do so. He throws a feast, which is customary. In the ancient Near East at the time, it would have been a seven-day feast. On the first day of that feast, there would have been a large procession, a kind of parade that would have come from the bride's home. They would have come to the ceremony and had an elaborate ceremony where vows were exchanged and a marriage contract was brokered. And then they would issue forth into a celebration that would go way into the night. And then on that night, the bride and groom's relationship would be finalized, would be closed through the consummation of their marriage. It wasn't unusual at that day and time. It gives us a little bit of the heebie-jeebies when we look at the text. But if you look at verse 23, it wasn't unusual for the father to bring the daughter to the tent of the groom for the consummation to take place. Look at verse 23. But in the evening, Laban took his daughter, Leah, to Jacob, and he went into her. Verse 23. Now, it's at this point in the text, if you had not read uh, through this passage before, you would have gone... That's not right. It doesn't fall that way strictly upon you because you, many of you know this text. You, you knew that Leah was going to be spoken of there in verse 23, but there's nothing in the text at this point that would indicate that we should expect that. In fact, we expected, if we were reading it for the first time, to hear the name Rachel. It's at this point we know that some deception has really gone down, that he brought his daughter Leah to Jacob, and he went into her. Now, one of the questions, we have to address it, is at this point in the text is how in the world did this man not know this wasn't Rachel and that this was, this was Leah? How in the world would he have, he have missed um, what we must expect would be a fairly obvious reality? The text has already told us in, earlier in verse 17 that the eyes of Leah were, were weak it's a, it's a strange, difficult description, but it literally means that her appearance, the eyes, particularly in the ancient Near East, was a representation of beauty. Her eyes were not attractive. She was, a, she was a contrast to Rachel, who's described in both physical and facial description. She is beautiful in form and appearance. She's a foil. Rachel's a foil for Leah and Leah's a foil for Rachel. They're the opposite. So you would have already expected that he would have seen um, those eyes aren't Rachel's. Those are Leah's. What's going on in the midst of the text? Well, let me just remind you again of customs because we're 21st century American types and so we want to see what we're getting into before we get into it. In this situation, she would have been completely veiled as a part of the tradition. Very little of her would have even been visible the entire day to Jacob and the parties surrounding as a part of the tradition of the wedding ceremony. 
In addition to that, he brings her to Jacob when? At night. At night. It's darkness all around. She's covered completely. Now, don't remember, there's no electricity, right? This is several thousand years ago. There, there's, not, there's not reverberating light from the, from the city that's down the, down the street. This is, this is pitch black darkness as he brings her into the tent. In addition to that, let's not forget, they've just had a rip-roaring party. The language that's actually used in verse 21 to describe this party, there's a number of words for party that can be utilized in the Old Testament. The one that's described here, Dr. Bruce Waltke says, literally means a kind of drinking fest that took place. Suffice it to say that Jacob's faculties might not have been their best. The combining of those elements where we have a kind of internal physical darkness, we have an external cosmic heavenly darkness, and we have a personal shroud that's been placed over Leah, puts this as a perfect opportunity to pull the wool over Jacob's eyes. Most believe that it was not Rachel, um, that had, it was Rachel that had been a part of probably much of the ceremony that day, but that at some point, uh, Laban had taken her away and had brought in Leah and was bringing Leah at this particular moment under the cover of darkness in order to deceive Jacob. Now, on top of all of this, Leah's playing along. It's something mysterious and almost unspoken of in the text, but you can't neglect the reality of it. She has been now staged as a kind of actress. She is to go in and she is to play the role of Rachel. In the midst of the night and all of the going-ons of the evening, in all of the responses of Jacob to Rachel, she was to indicate that she was Rachel. She, she was in one sense, way, shape, or form, in on all that took place here. And that's why the next morning it was a complete rude awakening when Jacob rolled over and behold, the text tells us, behold, it's a, it's a seeing, behold, it was Leah. Now in this moment, Jacob throws, uh, throws the covers off, runs to his father-in-law. He's furious and he's looking for answers because he clearly believes that he's been defrauded. And he uses what is somewhat a little ironic in the text, says to him, why have you deceived me? Remember that phrase, what goes around comes around? Jacob's name means he cheats. He cheats. He has been a heel grabber from before he was even born. A man who will climb on top of you to get where it is that he wants to go. He has already swindled his brother out of a birthright. And he has snuck a blessing from his father. And now as he wakes up to what he thought was the right bride and is actually the wrong wife. He wants an explanation for why he has been deceived. My how times have changed. My how times have changed for Jacob. Jacob. 
Now, it's interesting if you begin to actually piece apart the text and you realize how deep Laban's deceit runs. This feeling as if I've been deceived is not even clear within the text that he's actually been deceived from the standpoint that he never had what looks to be an official agreement from Laban. If you look at verse 19, you begin to see the slipperiness of Laban come out. He says, listen, I'll work for you for seven years in order to have your younger daughter, Rachel. And you would expect that some handshake, some covenant would be formed, some agreement. But listen to the way that Laban puts it. Well, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. That's all Laban says. Which at this moment must sound a little bit not like a yes. He just says, it would be better if I give her to you than to another man. Why don't you just stay with me? He hasn't actually agreed. He hasn't actually said, yes, I will definitely give you Rachel for seven, seven years. He has, he has put, as it were, if it's a contract, a lot of wiggle room for interpretation. The her is not stated. He's leading, of course, Jacob to draw the conclusion that it's Rachel, but he hasn't stated so much. You can imagine how this will go over in a court of law. You can imagine a good lawyer will drive a truck through this language in order to defend Laban. But then notice Laban's response in verse 26 as he is interrogated by the questions of Jacob. It's nothing more than a backhanded slap. He says, listen, Jacob, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also. Did you catch that? It's not so done in in, in our country. The, The deceit, this unstated custom, this probably dubious statement it's, it's never been spoken, and, and now it just arises as a kind of cover for Laban. But did you hear the backhandedness? It's not done here like it's done over in your place where the younger actually gets a leg up on the older. It's not done that way here, Jacob. Welcome to Haran. You feel this moment? It's a little interesting that Jacob doesn't respond, isn't it? He comes in ready to file a lawsuit, feeling like he's got great charges. But then you look back at the statement of verse 19 and you think, well, we didn't really agree to anything specifically. And and now, through the traditions of primogeniture, the older being the one who gets the privilege rather than the younger, here in the context, it's as if Jacob is silenced in the midst of the deception. You know that must have been a verbal arrow to the heart and conscience of Jacob. That never do we give the younger before we give the older. He's casting aspersion on Jacob's country, his family, and yes, even Jacob himself. You know what this text is teaching us? It's teaching us that Jacob has met his match. That the deceiver has been deceived. The one who has been on the top of the game, being able to sneak here and there and manipulate in order to accomplish his own purposes, has, in the context of this passage, been snuck from. He's the one who's been had. Now, if you actually look at it, this sort of dose of his own medicine runs really deep in the midst of this text. It runs really deep. 
I want you to see the parallels between the way Jacob operated and the way Laban operated. Think of it this way. How did Jacob trick his father Isaac? Well, he tricked him by dressing up like his brother Esau and pretending to be someone that he wasn't. How is it that Laban tricked Jacob? By dressing up his older daughter Leah to act like she was the younger daughter Rachel in order to be someone that she's not. Not only did he get deceived, he got deceived in the same way he deceived. What's further than that? How is it that he actually deceived his father Isaac? Well, it was through, through blindness. Well, how is it that Laban actually deceived Jacob? Through blindness. He didn't see who the person actually was. And he extended to the person a privilege, a blessing. That if he had known who they were, he wouldn't have extended it. It's the same deception. It's, it's identical. There's this fascinating little section in Robert Alter's commentary, wonderful Hebrew scholar, where he quotes a, a kind of tradition within the, the Jewish commentators on this particular passage, looking at a number of manuscript evidences. It's a fictional accounting, the section that he quotes, but it actually gets to the poignancy of the moment. That Hebrew scholar shows that as Isaac was deceived through trying to touch even to feel whether Jacob, whether Esau was really Esau and not Jacob, through all of the touch that's implied in this passage, there was no way for Jacob to know who it is that he was actually with. In the evening, when the names would have been called Rachel, when in fact Leah would respond, yes. Why would she have done it with such deception? Well, in the same way as Isaac called out to Jacob, my son Esau, and he said, yes, in the midst of the darkness, was experiencing the same reality. Can you imagine the haunt as this begins to fall upon the reality of Jacob, what it is that's actually happened? The principle of what you reap is what you sow is what goes around comes around. The chickens really do come home to roost. The bed that you have made, you will have to lie in. Listen, this is the reality of the principle of this passage, but it points to actually a big problem. It's, it's a problem that we see actually throughout the Scriptures. It, the problem is a problem that all of us, all of us are Jacob. That all of us are Jacob. There's sin and deceit and deception and treachery and innuendo and passive aggressive behavior and saying things that we don't mean, manipulating to get to our ends. That, that actually in this room we're all a bunch of Jacobs in different ways, shapes, and forms. Some of us better at it than others. And that's not a compliment. We're all there in the midst of it, which means that we all have coming to us sooner or later reaping what we sow. We all will find ourselves in a moment like behold 
It was Leah. Of course, it was that moment when I had erased my name from that test and my teacher called me out into the hallway as I hurriedly thought of eloquent defenses, none of which convinced my own mind, and realized that the easiest path is going to be the hardest, confession. Confession. Now here's really where the problem comes in. There's nothing that's promised in this passage with confession that's going to change the consequences of the reality of what it is that Jacob is experiencing here in the midst of the passage. There's a problem over the fact that all of us sinning is going to lead to some sort of consequences. And oftentimes, even in our confession, it doesn't mean the consequences are wiped away. We know at this particular point, for instance, Jacob has a relationship with God. We've seen that in the previous chapter with the vision and the promises that were given to him. But isn't it interesting that the confession, the reality of the promise of being in relationship with God didn't wipe away the consequences? He's still experiencing them. The chickens are still coming home to roost. What's happening in the midst of this passage is it's telling us that we can't escape the outcome that our sin is ultimately going to lead us to. The scripture says it clearly in the book of Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin, the reaping of the sowing of sin is death. And that if judgment is coming for every soul upon the earth where all things will be known and everything will be made right, what makes you think that you're going to escape it? Time is a babbler, Nathaniel Hawthorne says. All will be revealed. All will be revealed. If you're not a little scared at that, you're not alive. You're not alive. That's a scary proposition. You probably know the story of the official in England who got an anonymous phone call and all the anonymous phone call said was, flee at once, all is known. And hundreds of them left England. They didn't even know what was known. They just left. They just left. You know, it's that sinking feeling when you get, you know, cold into the boss's office or you get a phone call from that person who's over you in terms of authority and they need to speak to you immediately. And part of your mind just says, what do they know? What do they know? I'm concerned about what they know. We're all just Jacobs. And these chickens will come home to roost. You see, in God's revealing of the consequences, though, I want you to know as a believer in Christ, He doesn't have it in for you. Laban, in many ways, has it in for Jacob here. He, he wants to milk him dry. He's going to get another seven years, 14 years for two of his daughters. He got a pretty good deal. Laban is a businessman. He's shrewd in his dealings and he will cut you to the quick if it means a benefit for himself. That's not the spirit of our God. Hebrews 12 tells us, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. Do you know one of the kindest things that God ever does in the course of your life 
is he puts you in a position where the trick is up for you. You know, it's the people who never get caught that we should worry about the most. It's the people who get caught who have a chance of being saved. You see, in this passage, it's not the unkindness or the malevolence of God that leads Jacob in this trial. It's the love of God that leads Jacob into this trial. For he is going to shape for himself a mighty instrument in the hand of God through the trial of this exposure. And he's going to make of him something he would never be otherwise. Don't you know it that the best thing that ever happened to me was being called out into the hallway by Miss Kaminish? And God training me in the work of the consequences of sin and leading me to a place that I would come to know I need someone better than me. I need someone better than me. You see, the beauty of the gospel is this, my friends. We are to reap what it is that we sow. We have reaped sin. We should sow death. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus has come in the likeness of you. And you know what he has done? He has sown perfect obedience. Why? So that you can reap a full and complete salvation. You see, the glory of the gospel is that at the end of the day, we don't, if we are in Christ, actually reap what it is that we sow. But Jesus reaps what we sowed. He reaped what we sowed. He experienced the full wrath and justice that our sins deserve. And so we get to reap what he sowed. We get the fruit of salvation. We get the free offer of his grace. We get the acknowledgement that it's not the love of God that comes to us because we're awesome. It's the love of God that comes to us because Jesus is awesome. That's the love of the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. That's the strength of this passage. You see, Jacob needs to know that. We need to know that. We need to know that. Some of us right now need to know that. The recognition that it's that grace that not a one of us in here needs more than that reality right there, that there's someone better who has lived your life and he has come for you to trust in him and he has provided a beautiful way for salvation. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today, that's an offer for you to put your faith in Christ and to recognize as a Jacob you have no hope unless Jesus saves you from the consequences of your sin. But if you're a believer in Christ today, listen, it's an equal call to you. Some of you, you know, you're not where it is you need to be. And actually you live most of your days praying not to be found out. By God's grace, you will be found out. And in the finding out, you will find him again. And in finding him again, you will realize the beauty and the glory of his grace. Father in heaven, come and take these words. Take these truths and work them deep into our Jacob hearts. And turn us into hearts that are more akin to the reality of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord.